Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Support at LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm alone today in the studio while Kate and Medea are off on various assignments, travels, and adventures. Today, I have a conversation with Stephen Van Dyke, author of People I've Met from the Internet. We talk about, obviously, meeting people on the internet, about gay sex in the digital age, about memory, about lists, and about the tension between meeting people online and then having that relationship suddenly become a real-life encounter. So without further ado, let's cut to that conversation with Stephen Van Dyke, author of People I've Met from the Internet. I'm excited to have Stephen Van Dyke in the studio today. Stephen is an L.A.-based writer, artist, and educator. And he joins us today to talk about his first book, the nonfiction experimental memoir, People I've Met from the Internet. The book reimagines the coming-of-age narrative for a digital generation, following a teenage Stephen as he navigates coming to terms with his sexuality in the late 90s. This is important. You, it's not live, obviously, so if you flub a line, just like go back to the beginning and we'll edit it out. Okay. Which I'm just about to do. Uh, the book reimagines the coming-of-age narrative for the digital generation, following a teenage Stephen as he navigates coming to terms with his sexuality in late 90s AOL chat rooms in New Mexico, winding its journey through its journey through hookups, loves, friendships, loss, and more as he makes his way to Los Angeles and then eventually adulthood. Graphically and narratively interesting, People I've Met from the Internet addresses both the timelessness of queer experience, especially, I would say, of the oscillation between hope and disappointment and hope's return, as well as the timeliness of queer life in a digital age. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you for having me. Okay, so first, um, let's talk a little bit about the form of the book, which kind of starts with... um, I guess you would call it like an Excel spreadsheet of all the guys that eventually, and girls who eventually appear um, in the book. And then throughout, you kind of have riding vertically along the margins, um, kind of citations or footnotes of those individuals as they appear more or less on each of the pages. Um, but this is obviously a collection of lists of guys that you had encounters with, whether you kissed them, had sex with them, just fooled around, whatever. Um, so can you kind of talk about how you first conceived of the book and then the practice through which you collected all of these memories and individuals across your, your early life? Sure. Um, well, it started as a list. I've always been a big list keeper and I've had other lists, lists of dreams. I guess that's like a dream journal, but a <laughs> list of worries, a list of like project ideas, like mm, art and writing yeah. project ideas. Um, I had a professor who thought that the list itself when I showed it to her uh, was a, a completed piece <laughs> of the art and writing project ideas. Um, so I I think it was just out of curiosity just to make the list itself and keep the list. Uh, that's where the list started. And then, um, you know, and some people have uh, asked like why a list of people you met uh, in person from the internet and not mm-hmm. just like a 
like who I had sex with list. Right, like a black book list. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I think I, I think even if we didn't fool around it, or kiss even, it felt like an achievement. Um, it felt like it felt like I had succeeded um, just by getting them in person. Um, and then later, well, I was in my MFA program, um, and I had to turn in something. And I thought, well, maybe I should annotate that list because I keep talking about it, and it's interesting. Mm. And it, I don't know, it comes up a lot in my thinking about other things. And so that's when, oops, that's when I started to. Uh, that's when I started to uh, write down my memories. But then I also had already written a lot of stories about people in the list. Uh, and I had a Zanga blog that I mined for, uh, you know, I took uh, little blog bits and turned them into annotations. Okay. And I want to actually, now that you've mentioned it, so um, I want to kind of trace out the technological history <laughs> that you kind of limb here, which is moving, and I'm going to try to keep all of this more or less actually chronological, but starting with AOL, that's the easiest, AOL chat rooms. Then there's Yahoo Personals. Then there's Gay.com, also MySpace, I think, around the same time. Gay.com, I think, was a little bit earlier, actually. Gay.com was earlier, um, but I was kind of late to Gay.com. Okay, and then you have Zanga, um, which is the microblogging site, kind of a prelude to Tumblr. And then there's also Friendster and eventually Facebook. I don't think you don't get to Grindr any of the, like, the apps, no, the, there's the no... kind of location-based apps in this yet. There's, yeah. Because the book ends in 2009, yes, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, and there's Planet Out and D-List and Adam for Adam at the, towards the end. Um, All right. Manhunt. No, you don't have there's any. There's one Manhunt. One from Manhunt. Person. Okay. And there's Hot or Not. Surprising number of Hot or Not people. Oh, that's right. Which now Hot or Not was also, I, I have always wondered if Hot or Not was not uh, one of the early references that Tinder drew on because it's kind of a similar thing. But Hot or Not was also kind of like a joke. Like it was a joke, yeah. but not really a joke. Like it was used to have like witty responses and it was fun to kind of like play with. Yeah. Right. It seemed like a gag. Well, what I say in the book is that Hot or Not seemed like a gag to most people, but I, I thought it seemed like gay people took it really seriously. <laughs> like they, they needed it or something. <laughs> to get that number up. Yeah. <laughs> um, so as you kind of think about the your movement through using these kind of digital spaces, I mean, what did digital space mean for you as like a gay teen and then later as kind of a young adult? Well, it was, uh, I didn't have access to all these people otherwise. Mm -hmm. And I was at least five or six years away from being old enough to go to a gay club. Right. Um, but even if I, well, and I could go to, I, I would sneak into the, uh, you know, 18 and up night, um, the goth night at the Pulse in Albuquerque. Um, but still, it didn't feel like I could really meet anyone there. Um, so, I don't know. It felt like my mother was kind of, unaccepting or it seemed that way I think she mm. would have come around but in the book it talks about it reveals uh, her 
kind of unaccepting side. But um, right when she asks you if you're gay, she says, and then you say no. Are yeah. you a homosexual? <laughs> it's like how do you respond to that? So um, yeah, so it seemed really like I don't know. It was like a, almost for my survival to go on to the mm. AOL M for M chat rooms um, in 1997. Yeah. I definitely remember there was something, and I've I've often thought about this uh, with regard to location-based services like Grindr, um, where suddenly it made the invisible visible. Like suddenly you felt, A, like not alone, right? That it's like, oh my God, like at any given moment, I'm quote unquote surrounded, I mean, depending on your location, surrounded by like other gay people, right? Which means like, yes, there's like other people that I could have sex with, but also mostly that it's like, a lot of times I think for gay people, especially not in major urban centers, it can feel like, um, God, I'm the only queer in the village, right? And these kind of spaces made you feel like, oh, actually, maybe I'm not. And there's a moment where you talk about um, the AOL, I forget the name of the one in Albuquerque, but it was like Albuquerque M4M or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. And then it was suddenly you were like, this seemed to be like it was the main hub for like gay gay New Mexico yeah. or something like it that. It was the gay capital of That's what Albuquerque. it is. Yeah, the That's gay capital of Albuquerque. So I want to talk a little bit then about how it's we were when we were chatting before the show, I was saying how, you know, my experience, and I wonder if I had been like born just a little bit later. When um, were you born? I was born in the uh in nineteen eighty two. So nineteen eighty two. Yeah. Oh, you're so, a year older than me. Exactly. right. So it's which is also why I'm interested that like your experience was with this was so different. Um, because I think so on the one hand, oh, Okay, we're going to have to break this up, but like there's several <laughs> questions now that I have for you. So one is the specter of HIV/AIDS, um which does appear in here but does not appear in the kind of all-consuming fear-based way that I think it did in my experience. So I grew up in Kentucky um as opposed to New Mexico, so maybe things are different in the desert. Um but I I was wondering like that seemed pronounced to me, especially as somebody who is around the same age, that it's like, was that not... Because when you're younger in some of the entries, you're like, oh, yeah, I can't remember if it's like I found out later that he had HIV, but there are definitely some that you're like, I, he, it turns out, or it was rumored that he had HIV, but it seems the effect is rather flat. So it's like, how did kind of your idea about gayness and its relationship with all these other kinds of things and culture... Um, like, how is that shaped early on? Well, I think it's really interesting that you point out our age difference because I think that, like, that's actually, like, the the thing is, from from my vantage point, HIV, AIDS seemed like ancient history. And I think that mm. it is, like, just, like, a couple, it was just, like, a couple years back in time, but I just missed it. So I, it, it seemed... Yeah, it seemed ancient. It seemed like something I'd been he like kind of hearing about in the distance, like my whole childhood. Um, and um, wait, so your sex ed classes were not like chock full of like warnings about AIDS? Um, maybe they were. I don't know. That's what I feel. Maybe <laughs> it's just different media consumption because it's like that's what I feel like I remember so viscerally is this like alignment of like 
queerness, with HIV AIDS, and then obviously with like death until like the mid 90s when it was like, well, Magic Johnson was able to survive, you know, like that kind of stuff. Right. Maybe it was there and it's a personality thing or something. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I, well, uh, the way well, that, you said you were born in 1983? Yeah. So saying, okay, all right. But I do think there's like a significant like difference that happened there like with, you know, gays who were growing up in the early 90s. And um, also I might be like somebody who kind of became culturally aware a little later in life. Mm. Like my cultural references don't really include like, you know, I don't know, Tiffany and Debbie Gibson and... <laughs> like stuff like that. Like I don't. I'm either. I don't think. I don't remember yeah. the '80s, but I have friends who are almost my the same age as me who do. I don't know. But yeah. um, oh, what was I about to say? Oh, my father uh, and I first talked about my my sexuality. He confronted me and mm. asked if my friend Quinn and I were having safe sex, and um, so it was there. And of course, I was like, no, I'm not sleeping with Quinn. But, like, yes. Um, <laughs> but it, it was like he was more concerned with, like, my my sexual safety. Mm. So, yeah. Um. So the other thing that I wanted to ask about is... Um, this idea of meeting people on the internet. So let's talk about it first as like a kind of online cruising versus like cruising in real life. Because there's a place that you mention in Albuquerque called The Cruise, right? Yeah. It's like a roundabout or a cul-de-sac or something like that, um, that a bunch of guys line up in cars and that's how you meet people. Um, same would obviously happen at a gay bar, as everybody knows. Uh, but like, how do you see those two things as distinct? Mm. Um, like, is it a different rhythm of one's encounter? I mean, there's obviously the delay between meeting someone online and then meeting them in person. At the cruise, because the cruise still existed and we would go there, it felt kind of, I mean, to me, it felt a little bit like a party. Like, I mean, we were all in our cars, but you could like hear other people's music blasting out of their cars. Mm. And um, I mean, I don't know. Uh, in the chat room, uh, it felt more private. I say this in the book that it, it feels like in the chat room, there was a way in which people were more hidden um, in in person, IRL. Um, <laughs> you could still like, even if somebody's poking, peering out of their like tinted windows, you can still see them. You can right. still see their eyes. Um, with the chat room, you could view people in the in the chat room list. I can still remember AOL kind of. Um, <laughs> and you can still view their profiles, but you you know, that's still you can't really tell like what they're you know projecting out into the world and what they're hiding and who's fake and you know, um, so there is something lost or different but maybe also something gained yeah i mean do you prefer meeting guys on the internet or in real life um i have always preferred meeting online and i think that it's like out of habit it's mm. just how i started 
So I didn't have the experience of, um, you know, running into someone in person. Um, maybe I was too oblivious to notice if somebody was flirting. <laughs> I don't know. But like it, in the book, like a friend of mine when, I, when we were teens met his boyfriend at the mall, like just walking on the side of the street, his boyfriend mm. just like pulled up and was like, you're cute. <laughs> and that always like, I don't know, it was so weird. Well, and I feel like probably also in, you know, public space when you can't go to like a gay bar, right? Because you're not of age to go to a club or something like that. Um, probably also feels very freighted. Like there's a way in which you're kind of like, you know, don't let anybody know or like yeah. like you're more circumspect, I think. So then maybe in, in the online world, even though you say there are all these kind of like masks and like ways of hiding, do you feel that you were able to kind of make some more like honest or at least like open connection with someone else? Yes, mm. definitely. Well, and I think there are people who do that in public spaces and that goes into the whole thing with like how to project yourself through like what you wear. And, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But I was terrified of doing that. And I think I projected gayness anyhow, but <laughs> I was terrified of like what my mother would think of mm. me wearing certain things or, you know, I had fantasy ideas of, and I like was drawing a drag queen in my own notebook. And I don't even think I knew exactly what a drag queen was, <laughs> but it really looked like when it even had like male like cheekbones and mm. I don't know it was yeah it's interesting how we like channel gay culture before we even know what gay culture is yeah like, yeah I was obsessed with the golden girls and I was like nine I didn't know that was a gay thing you are listening to the LARB radio hour recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood we've been speaking with Stephen Van Dyke author of People I've Met from the Internet. We will return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We are joined in the studio today by Shelley Oria. She's the editor of an anthology called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. And Shelley is here to give us a book recommendation, or I suspect many book recommendations. Yeah, so we have about an hour and a half, right? We do. This segment, <laughs> yeah. Because what I originally wanted was to tell the listeners about all the incredible books that the contributors of Indelible and the Hippocampus have written over the years. But I won't do that. I think there will be a list that people can find. There um, will be online. Yes. So that's, that's wonderful. And I think I'll just mention a few books that have sort of led me in most of these cases to these contributors because of their feminist themes, because of the kind of writing that I wanted to feature in Indelible. One of those is a collection by Lisa Chappelle called Blueprints for Building Better Girls, which even though it came out a number of years ago, is such a Me Too collection of stories. And I'm thinking specifically of, um, I mean, it's so much about the experiences that women have that they don't feel that they can share. And I'm mm -hmm. thinking specifically of a, one of the stories that I'm blanking on the title of, but that the end of that story is a woman sharing with her grandfather who has dementia uh, about being raped. And, sh and he's the only person she can share that with knowing that he won't remember. Yeah. It is such a beautiful, powerful book. And I hope people will check it out. And then, you know, there's so many collections of short stories from contributors in the book that are sort of 
feminist with a capital F, even mm. though they, in some of the cases they don't declare it, but it is in the DNA of these stories. And I'm thinking of Rebecca Schiff's The Bed Moved and Nellie Reifler's See-Through from so many years ago and such such a radical feminist book in my mind. And of course, Samantha Hunt's The Dark Dark, which hit such a note with so many readers recently, I think in part because of the sort of feminist tones and kind of putting women's experience um, in all kinds of ways in the forefront. And I'm thinking also of Mecca Jamila Sullivan's Blue Talk and Love, which is sort of all of the, the stories in that book are about women and girls of color navigating our fucked up world. I am allowed to say that, right? And I was just yes. feeling the fucked upness of our world as I was <laughs> saying that. And lastly, I'll just mention, I think a book that a lot of people are waiting for is Honor Moore's new book that's coming out early next year, which is Our Revolution, A Mother and Daughter at Mid-Century, which I sort of, what I love about that, I've only, I've only read snippets, but just from all of Honor's books and her writing, I really can't wait for that book. And I think it's the kind of generational approach to it because mm. it is told through the lens of the relationship between a mother and daughter. And through the unfolding of that, we kind of get an idea of uh, women's experiences and femininity and the construction of that in the 20th century and how that looks like from the points of view of two different women in different ages. So we have much to read before that book comes out, but we can also look forward to that book. Shelley, will you give us the names again of the authors and the titles so that um, of everything I just mentioned of everything you just mentioned but again I should say to listeners we will provide a full list on our website at the lareviewofbooks.org we'll tweet out a link and you'll be able to if you can't if you're hurrying to go get a pen uh, and paper to write this down don't worry about it We'll provide we'll it to provide. you. Yes, we'll but help you. Tell but us I will repeat again. now, and that's Blueprints for Building Better Girls by Lisa Chappelle, The Bed Moved by Rebecca Schiff, See Through by Nellie Reifler, The Dark Dark by Samantha Hunt, Blue Talk and Love by Mecca Jamila Sullivan, and Our Revolution, A Mother and Daughter at Mid-Century by Honor Moore, and I'm going to add my own firstborn, New York One, Tel Aviv Zero by Shelley Oria. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Shelley. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Shelley Oria. She's the editor of a multi-genre collection. It is called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. Thanks again. Thank you so much for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Stephen Van Dyke, author of People I've Met from the Internet. The book ends, or the kind of record of relationships ends in 2009. Mm-hmm. So obviously a decade has passed in between those the, the end of the book and where we are now. Um, when you look back at this, like, are you different than the person that you're giving an account of in the book? And in what way? I think I'm, even then I was different than the person portrayed in the book. Like, Mm. because we're so complex as people and there's only so much time in a book to cover Mm -hmm. so many things. And uh, definitely between the end of the book and now, 10 years have passed. And so even... The person I was then and me now are very different too. Um, but I think 
the way the book looks at all of this, like I was trying to explain to somebody that, because somebody asked me how the like losses in the book are like what they have to do with like meeting a bunch of guys for hookups. Just as a as a brief note to the listener, it's like Stephen does talk about the loss of his mother in a very traumatic way. Um, and then also later the loss of his father. Yeah. And I my reaction was, well, the way that this friend said that, it made me think, oh, it's like you're suggesting that it was like an addiction. And mm. in the like actual me, you know, I, I have like kind of tried to deal with it as like, do I have like sex and love addiction? I don't know, but I've had to come to terms with some things. But I think the book is more hopeful about like what's going on um, than actual me. Yeah, it doesn't, I will say, you know, as a total, as an utterly unqualified therapist, <laughs> um, that it does not sound, the book doesn't give any sense that it's like there's some kind of addiction. Right. Right. I, I don't think it's that. Um, I do think, though, that said, I think there is kind of an interestingly flat affect in most of the book when it comes, to, not always, but for the most part, uh, especially when it comes to sex, almost as if it's like something that just happened or you're not really interested in thinking about the details of it, right? Or yeah. or it could also be an aesthetic choice that it's like you're juxtaposing these kind of sexual, and I should also say many non-sexual encounters or encounters that were sexual but don't end in sex alongside like other kind of like, um, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but like very mundane observations about like, and then I had to go to the mall or I got this CD and I yeah. needed to pay my friend back and it was a struggle making rent, like those kind of things, right? So, but can you talk a little bit about like, um, maybe what like sex means to you? Well, I think in the book, sex is part of the setting. It's like, it's it's just there. It's there a lot. It's and, just happening. Yeah, it's happening a lot. And it's not the like main event. Of, it's not the main course of what's going on. It's, yeah. So it's an occasion for connection, but it's not the substance of that connection. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely part of the connection. It's It's just not... It's not the substance itself. Yeah, it's like the vessel. I don't know. Mm. And then uh, to kind of wrap up, I wanted to ask about um, what you think about effectively the thorough digitization of, and this is not just true of LGBTQ people, but in general, that's where I see and experience it, um, of LGBTQ relationships, right? That it's like now there's an app for everything. And like I said, this is not exclusive to just queer people. Um, but like in many ways, it's like your book both anticipates that and kind of sees the dawn of that in the AOL chat rooms. And then like now we're at a place where it's like, Friends that I know have like five different apps that they're all kind of using for right. very, even though their profile is pretty much the same across all of them. Right. It's like, is their Grindr profile so different from Scruff, so different from Growler or whatever? Um, but like, how do you feel about that? Like, because to me, I will say from my experience, it seems like very exhausting. <laughs> like it's a, it's for many of the, it's a part-time job to be managing all of those profiles. And then kind of constantly thinking about how you're presenting yourself 
which is not to say that you're not doing that when you're in just like a bar or on the street or whatever, but yeah. it seems like a lot of effort. Well, I mean, my life 15 years ago was kind of like that. Mm. And I think a lot, there were a lot of queers using all these things then. And now it's like everybody. It's like mm-hmm. straight people too. Sometimes I describe my book and they're like, oh yeah, like everybody's, and I'm like, no, 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 this was in 1998. <laughs> and they're like, like how, what? Like how did, and I'm like, yeah, like queers did it first mm-hmm. by like 15 years. And it wasn't like they were like techno pioneers. They were like just needing each other. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, and well, I mean, I can tell you like <laughs> the personal effects on my like you know, brain of mm. like living a whole life this way. I also talk in the book about losing all my computer files and which happened in 2010, but we kind of moved it. Um, and it was like I had digital digitized my life. And mm. so when I lost all my computer files, I really felt like I like lost my sense of who I am. Wow. And okay. that might be the subject of another thing I'm working on. But <laughs> I was really thrown for a loop. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I sometimes I have to kind of like think in terms of like a dating profile just to like like imagine myself. I don't know. Really? That requires some ex- expanding and I don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> um and then I also kind of what I know that you're an artist in in your life as well. So it's like, and I think primarily video art, is that right? Like performance video. Performance video art. So like, does your art, um, for listeners, does it engage similar kinds of themes, like about digitization, looking for love, hope and disappointment, that sort of thing? Yeah, a number of projects that are in kind of a similar vein come up in the book. Mm. My character, who's me, like arrives... (laughs) at a, like a like a oh I'm an artist and then so kind of in the last third of the book um we see the character like doing all these art projects one um I I I keep switching between me and my character I took baths platonic baths with guys through Craigslist personals mm. um and then the idea was that I was going to both video and audio record the bath and then we and then the guy would drive us around my neighborhood in his car with the windows down and the audio of the bath playing through the stereo on full blast <laughs> and so that's described in the book there are a number of other projects like that but after the book ends um, I did another project called customer care I um, was dealing with my defaulted loans and mm. I called customer service agents, debt collectors and telemarketers and through an episodic narrative that was for K-Chung Radio, an artist-run radio station. So I have done radio before. <laughs> um, through these conversations, we talked about our personal lives. All right, well, we will end there. We've been speaking with Stephen Van Dyke, author of People I've Met from the Internet. Thank you so much, Stephen. Thanks for having me.
You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance, and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 